If you've not been with us or if you missed uh, uh, one or two, uh, Ezra is a narrative. It's 10 chapters long. So if you miss one piece, it's hard to kind of figure out where we are. Uh, So let me summarize it for us quickly. Uh, At the beginning of the book, uh, verse 1, God's people are in captivity. Uh, This is kind of the last chapter of Old Testament history where uh, God's people have been sent from Israel into Babylon. They're enslaved there. They're captives there. And uh, they've been there for decades. And now uh, they've been freed. They get freed not because they've won some kind of battle against the Persians, against the Babylonians, but uh, because one day uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, wakes up and says, you know what? I want to send you guys home. I want to send you guys home uh, to Israel. uh, And uh, I'm also going to pay for the temple. So imagine being uh, an Israelite. Imagine being a Jew at that time and being sent home by your pagan ruler and that they were going to pay for the temple. I mean, it's shocking news, but this is God's work within his people. He promised them they'd only be there 70 years. And so now it's time. So they go back. And when they get there, uh, they start building the altar. They get the altar done. They have a huge celebration. And as soon as the altar gets built, uh, opposition comes from all sides because when they left Israel... And went to Babylon, other peoples settled in their home. And so now they're back. Now they're setting up shop. People who have been there the whole time they've been in Babylon are are mad about it. And so they're their opposition. And the opposition, it it discourages God's people. They don't get any further on the temple than just the altar. And for 20 years, the work stops. It, It lays dormant. After 20 years, God sends uh, two prophets. He sends Zerubbabel, he sends Haggai, or not Haggai. He sends Zephaniah, or uh, shoot, who am I missing? Zechariah, a Z name. Uh, Zechariah and uh, Haggai, he sends them to wake up God's people. It indeed happens. They get the temple done in four years, and it's an amazing thing. So now that it's built, Ezra's been sent. Ezra's a priest. And as a priest, he's going to teach people God's word. Before he can teach it, he's got to study it, and he's got to do it. And so he's their leader. And we get to chapters 9 and 10, and we see that Israel's greatest problem is not found from the people who are not Israelites. That Israel's greatest problem comes from within. And isn't that true for me and you? We often want to point on the outside of the church. We want to point outside ourselves as the main problem. But in reality, there's a lot of work to do in this room. The truth is, when you get in conflict, you, you want to point at the other person when the truth is there's a lot to do within you in order to make reconciliation happen, in order for holiness to come about. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Ezra chapter 9 and 10 tonight. Um, let me pray, and uh, we'll get started. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us the humility uh, that if we're going to point one finger at someone else, that we're going to point three at ourselves. And uh, Lord, I, I pray that that's uh, what this passage not just teaches us intellectually, not just teaches us cognitively, uh, but Lord, you would make us these kind of people at a character level. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so Ezra, I told you, he, uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 10 says that he was a studier, a doer, and a teacher of God's word. So now he's been going throughout Israel teaching what God's word commands of the people. And while he's out teaching the word, he gets a report uh, from other leaders that uh, there's something going on from within God's people that's not pleasing to God. And it's the fact that there's intermarriage going on. This intermarriage is going on even among the Levites, among the priests. Intermarriage, when it comes to the Old Testament, is when an Israelite marries someone who's not part of God's people. It's a really big deal. There's three places in the law, both Exodus 34 
Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 20, forbid intermarriage. Now, when you hear the word intermarriage, you begin to think of interracial marriage, right? You begin to think of inter-ethnic marriage. And so before you accuse the Bible of being pro-segregation, you've got to really know what's going on with intermarriage in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Because what you'll find out is that it's not about racism. Uh, the leader, if, if you ask any, any current Jew, if you've been around the Old Testament very much, and you say, who's the foremost character in the Old Testament? Almost everyone would say it's Moses, right? Well, just so you know, Moses did not marry an Israelite. Mary, or Moses married a Midianite, Zipporah. And not only is their marriage not condemned, it's celebrated throughout the Old Testament. That's just one example. Let me give you another. The other one is Boaz and Ruth. Boaz is an Israelite. Ruth is a Moabite. And they're married. Married, And their marriage is not just allowed, not just permitted, but it's celebrated in the book of Ruth. So what's the difference between what's going on with Moses and Zipporah and Boaz and Ruth with what's going on in Ezra chapters 9 and 10? Well, it's real simple. What's going on there is a spiritual reality. Because what had to happen is Zipporah and Ruth, they were converted. They were converted from being pagan and now they're worshipers of Yahweh, the Israelite God. But in Ezra chapter 9 and 10, the intermarriage is denounced there. It's not about ethnicity, it's about spirituality. So without conversion, the non-Israelites posed a serious threat to the spirituality of God's people. So the non-believing spouse could both tempt the Israelite spouse to abandon their allegiance to the one true God and not be led there themselves. And that's what we see. Look at, look at uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Let's read it together. You'll see it in verses 1 and 2. So you, you, uh, verse 1. After these things had been done, after these things being done, meaning uh, um, uh, Ezra going around teaching God's word, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with the abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Okay? So all those are the people groups who had settled in Israel when Israel had taken off to gone to Babylon. Verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. All right, so that's the predicament we find themselves in. Let's see what Ezra does with the news. Look at verse 3. As soon as I heard this, this is Ezra, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled <clears throat> hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, both of my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. All right, so put yourselves in the shoes of those who had intermarried. Put yourself in their shoes. So culturally, this has become accepted. It's, it's widespread practice. And you can understand why this would happen. Uh, you're, they're living their life as one of God's people. They become attracted to someone who's shown interest in them. 
their heart begins to skip a beat. It's the first time that they've received romantic attention from anyone. They've never been treated with this kind of respect in a romantic relationship until now. They just can't stop thinking about this person. As far as they're, con- they're concerned, this is good marriage material that they're encountering here. The problem is, is that their God is not your God. So what do you do if you're in their shoes? There's a novel. There's a novel called On the Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness. It's by Andrew Peterson. It's for kids. I've not read it. I just read a review. Um, But I'm going to tell you what it's about right here. Um, In this novel, uh, there's this group, and this group, they're called the Nasty Fangs of Dang. (laughs) Dang is a place. It's an awful place, and the fangs are the ones who live there. And the fangs from Dang look just like humans, but there's a few differences. Uh, They have a lizard snout. Uh, They have two long fangs, they have tails, and they've got these green-like scales. Kind of sound like teenage boys to me. And perhaps most of all, they stink. They really sound like teenage boys. Uh, These fangs of dang, they eat molding, decaying food. Uh, They're murderous and hateful. And what they spend their time scheming is stealing children. And the only way the children get help is if they cry out to their maker. And a, an Israelite marrying one of these people that you see here in verse 1 would be like one of these children marrying a fang from Dang. See, unless this fang is converted and transformed into a new creature, this fang should be off limits. And the only way a child would ever cuddle up with a fang and marry it as if the child forgot their own identity. As if the child grew accustomed to the filth and the stench and the cruelty of fangs. And this is the way that we need to view as Christians marrying non-Christians. Now we've already said this isn't about ethnicity whatsoever. It's about spirituality. But we also have to say what this text doesn't say. This text doesn't say that the people of God should have absolutely nothing to do with any of these peoples. It just says that they shouldn't marry them. We know this to be true. Matthew 5 says we're supposed to be salt and light to the world. Jeremiah 29 says that we're supposed to live in exile among the city so the city might flourish, not away from the city, isolated from the city in an enclave of the people of God. And so as Christians, we're not called to isolate ourselves from the world. We're called to engage it. We're supposed to engage it with love. We're supposed to live our lives among non-believers. But there's a differentiation that needs to be made. Living among a non-believing world in work, as roommates, as friends, and even with families, this isn't just, again, not just allowable, not just permittable. It is our calling. But knowingly marrying a non-Christian is a very, very different thing. So what does Ezra do? We saw it in verses 3 to 5. What does he do in response to this news that he hears of intermarriage? Well, verses 3 to 5, you see, he becomes completely undone. 
see in verse 2 that he tears his clothes, he tears out his hair, he tears out his beard, and he sits appalled. And Ezra seems simply beside himself in helpless frustration. And then he prays. And he prays in verses 6 to 15. The rest of the chapter, it's not printed in your bulletin. And his prayer is one of repentance. Now, again, if you are Ezra, is this how you would respond to the news of intermarriage among your people? Likely not. Wouldn't be my response. Instead, what I probably would have done is I probably would have gotten my copy of the Scriptures. I would have turned to Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 20, Exodus 34, showed them those passages and says, Hey, have you read God's Word lately? Would you get your act together? Maybe on a different day I'd I'd find out about this report and say, Come on, man. They love each other. I know what God says in Deuteronomy 7, 20 and Exodus 34, but God's one of love. He'll understand this predicament. But Ezra doesn't choose either route, does he? He doesn't go right into fix-it mode, nor does he go into brush-it-under-the-rug mode. Instead, he chooses the road of repentance. And his repentance, of genuine repentance, has some characteristics that are worth drawing out. And the first one, is that his repentance is both bodily and verbal. It's with his it's physical in its nature, and it's verbal in its nature. It's physical in its nature because he tears his clothes, he pulls out his hair, he pulls out his beard, and he's got this prostrate posture in his prayer. But it's more than just what he does, it's also the words he uses. And you see that in his prayer, verses 6 to 15. So that's the first one of genuine repentance. It's both physical and verbal. The second thing you see is that his repentance is sorrowful. There's this super intense emotional experience that Ezra has here. And oftentimes when your sin is brought to light, when you get caught, you get backed into a corner, you don't have any excuses, you agree with the accusations, You're going to accept the consequences. You usually aren't all that sorrowful. You know you're wrong, but there's a difference between knowing you're wrong and being repentant. To be repentant at least means, it doesn't mean just this, but it at least means that sorrow is involved. So how do you get sad about your sin? Well, think about what your response was when we read those five verses. If you side with Ezra in those first five verses and you feel this dismay over sin, then you can understand how you get sad. But if you read these first five verses and you think that the Israelites who intermarried didn't really do anything all that terrible then you have a hard time seeing how you could ever be all that sad about your sin. So we see that sin is physical and it's verbal. We see sin is sorrowful. And the last thing we see is that his repentance is corporate. And this is the one that really grates at me. Because Ezra repented for sin that he didn't commit. 
Let me say that again. Ezra repented for sin he didn't commit. See, when Ezra brought back his crew from Persia, it wasn't his crew who was intermarrying. The ones who were intermarrying was the crew that we read about at the beginning of the book. The crew that came was Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And if I were Ezra and somebody brought me this case and I was clearly the leader that God had risen up, I would have said, hey, this is your all's mess. I would have never intermarried like you. I'm way too spiritual for any of that. But if Ezra would have done that, he would have been in line with most Christian leaders who are quick to address other people's sins and not their own. And here we have Ezra is addressing other sins as his own. In fact, he feels more guilty for their sin than they do. There's no smug self-righteousness with Ezra. And you see in his prayer in verses 6 to 15 that he's not exalting himself over those who had sinned. Rather, he's praying for them. And he's identifying fully with them. This teaches us a lot about leadership, doesn't it? When you think about great leadership, does repentance find its way on your list of requirements? chapter 7, our last sermon, we saw that Ezra was someone who studied, did, and taught God's word. And now we're learning about him that he so deeply identifies with God's people that he repents for them and with them. And we see that this gets contagious in chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. So let's read that in your bulletin. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. A very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. So you see what happened right here, don't you? Ezra's repentance pricked their conscience. Ezra has now infected the Israelites with this repentance bug. Ezra's repentance has become contagious. Now, I'm 38. I've only been doing this ministry thing for 11 years. And I, have, I, feel, I really do feel as green as I've ever felt these last in 11 years. I really do. I'm going to ensure myself all the time. But there's one thing that I've learned. That repentance really is the key to leadership. It's the key in my role as pastor. Therefore, I need to be repenting to you. It's key in my role as husband. Therefore, I need to be repenting to Jenna. It's key in my role as father. Therefore, I need to be repenting to Audrey and to Eden and to Brooksy. 
And so wherever I lead, I need to be repenting. And this has a lot of benefits. You don't see them at first, but it has a lot of benefits. Because what repentance does for a leader is that it shows those that he or she leads that they don't need to be right. They don't need to be strong. They don't need to be capable. Because there's someone who's far more right, far more strong, and far more capable standing right behind them. Being a leader uh, who repents has more benefits. It's got the benefit of what it does for those you lead. Not only can you see Jesus, but it also becomes a lot harder to put a leader up on a pedestal when the leader's constantly taking themselves off the pedestal. But the, repent- the benefits just keep coming. Repentance also dethrones the leader in his or her own heart. See, if repentance is a regular practice in your life as a leader, it's really hard for you to believe your press. Because your attention isn't fixed squarely, because your attention isn't fixed on your achievements, it's fixed on the holiness of God, and it's fixed squarely on your own shortcomings. If you're a repenting leader, you're consumed with a desire not to be great, but you're consumed with a desire to grow and to change. And this requires repentance. And when you have a repenting leader, just like we see here in chapters 9 and 10, it begins to trickle down. You see it in chapter 10, verse 1, you see that the people now are weeping. Ezra had to weep first, and now they're weeping. And their weeping just isn't Weeping, it it, it leads to something else. It leads to a change in their behavior. See, those who had intermarried, they ended up sending their foreign spouses away. They just weren't sorry about what they did and didn't do anything about it. They were sorry and did something very costly. Now, when I read the passage for the first time, probably just like you're thinking now, like, hey, what happened to them? What happened to those spouses? What happened to those children? Or text doesn't tell us. I mean, maybe they went to their extended family. But I think we can be pretty confident from what we saw with Zipporah and Ruth that if these foreign spouses were willing to identify with Israel, if they're willing to worship Yahweh, then they wouldn't have been sent out. See, the focus of this text is not on what happens to the spouses and the children. The focus of this text is on the repentance of the Israelites, of God's people. And what's really clear about their repentance is that it's something that's corporate, it's something that's sorrowful, it's something that was physical, it's something that was verbal. And now this repentance has issued force into a transformation of life. So is this what repentance looks like for you? Does your repentance have a heavy dose of sorrow? Or do you just repent when you get caught? Does your repentance give expression both bodily and with words? Does your repentance have this corporate dimension that's not something that's highly individualized just between you and God, but it's done in public? That's what we see here. And perhaps most importantly, does your repentance lead to a transformed life? 
This kind of repentance is a hard road. In fact, I'd make the case it's an impossible road. So what made it possible for Ezra? What made it possible for those who had intermarried? I think we see it. We see it in verses 6 to 9. They're not in your bulletin, so you're just going to have to trust me and read it later. And what we see in this prayer is really, really important. We see the two ingredients that you need in order for the road of repentance to be possible. The first thing you see in the prayer is the seriousness of sin. You see it in verses 6 and 7. Here's what Ezra says. I am ashamed and blush in my face to you, my God. Our, not their, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted to the heavens. The seriousness of sin. But there's another ingredient in order for repentance to be possible. You need the grace of God. And you see in verses 8 and 9, phrases dripping with God's grace. Favor has been shown by the Lord our God. He has given us a secure hold within his holy place. God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving. And God has extended his steadfast love to us. Dripping with God's grace. And both of these realities are essential for your repentance. You have to see your sin as serious, and that's what leads to sorrow. You also have to see God as gracious, because if you don't see God as gracious, you're not going to approach him in your sorrow. You're not going to approach him with your words. You're not going to approach him with your body. You're not going to approach him as a community. And you certainly aren't going to trust him to transform your life. So you have to see the seriousness of sins and get to see the grace of God. Doesn't this sound familiar to you? Aren't you starting to smell something familiar? Even though you've probably never read Ezra 9 and 10. You should be smelling the cross of Christ. It sounds like Jesus to me. See, our sin was so serious that Jesus had to die for it. And God's grace was so real that Jesus didn't die just because he had to. He died because he wanted to. Isn't that amazing? That we're guilty. God's right. We can make no claims on God's mercy. We have no righteousness to plead before him. Yet God loved us enough to send his one and only son to suffer on our behalf. It just blows my mind. It blows my mind that Ezra would tear out his beard, even though I don't have one, tear out his hair, weep in public, strip his clothes, all for sins that he didn't commit. Well, so too, Jesus according to Isaiah 53, that he was numbered among the transgressors even though he had never transgressed. And to the degree that you see Jesus do this for you will be the degree to which that you can repent. All right, so let me close by addressing some different varieties of people among us tonight. First, let me talk to those of you who are single. I think this passage lays out really clearly the importance of marrying Christians. I know your loneliness is real. I know it's very easy to lose hope. I know it's very easy to compromise. 
But walking with Jesus requires you to refrain, refrain from marrying an unbeliever. Second, let me address those of you who are single and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here not because you wanted to worship God tonight. You're here because the person you're dating dragged you. That's happened a bunch around here, and I'm sure it's happened tonight to at least one of you. I know tonight's message is particularly tough to hear. But there's hope. And his name is Jesus. And he sure would love it if you would repent and come to him tonight. Let me talk to those of you who are married to an unbeliever. If you find yourself married to an unbeliever, what should you do? Well, if you are converted since you've been married, I would advise you to follow 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages those in this situation to remain married in hopes of winning over their spouse. But if you knowingly married an unbeliever as a Christian, then you're kind of in a pickle. And I think you need help. And I don't really know what you should do. And when I don't know what to do, I go to the elders. I'm just one of them. Maybe all four of us will cumulatively say, we don't know what to do, but we're going to be in this with you. I don't know. But if that's you and you're in that pickle, you don't have to be in that pickle alone. And for others of you, uh, you're married to a believer. You've been checked out for about the last 18 minutes. (laughs) But hear this. Perhaps the best thing that you can do is to be real family to the single who are among us. Maybe the single among us would find it far less tempting to engage with a non-believer if they knew that they were loved and enfolded to an existing Christian family in our church. Maybe their loneliness wouldn't be so acute because they're finding community with their brothers and sisters in Christ in our church. And so may God grant us courage as we repent. May God grant us faith to believe that he loves us even if we fail him. And may he give us love and patience for our brothers and sisters who find themselves in a bind. Let's pray. Father, we're tempted uh, to believe in formulas and uh, three-step plans. We're tempted to believe in... uh, that your love for us is not unconditional, but conditional and contractual, that you only love us when we're doing what we should. Uh, but Lord, you have, in your great grace, opened up this amazing uh, pathway forward instead of repentance. And so Lord, I pray that you would grant us the kind of repentance that we see here in our text. We pray this in your name. Amen.